The biblical tale, through the most rigorous economy of means, leads us again and again to ponder complexities of motive and ambiguities of character because these are essential aspects of its vision of man created by God, enjoying or suffering all the consequences of human freedom. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. As always, I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute, along with some very special guests. And we are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. So uh, over the past few weeks, we've had some, uh, I think we've been hitting it out of the park with our guests, but we are taking it up to a new level today. Not just one fabulous guest, but two. First off is Dr. Drew Johnson, who you heard reading from Robert Alter's The Art of Biblical Narrative just now. He is the associate professor at the King's College in New York City and the author of numerous books, including Biblical Philosophy which was just published this April by Cambridge University Press. And he's also the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought. Drew, thanks for joining us. It's an honor and a pleasure. And then we've also got uh, our own Tyler Foster, who is a Greek and Hebrew fellow here at the Ancient Language Institute. And he is running our very new, very exciting Hebrew program at ALI. He's a graduate of Polis, in Jerusalem, where he studied ancient philology. And super excited to have you, Tyler. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me here. So we're talking today about The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter. And I think it'll be pretty clear why we have our two guests with us to chat about this book. It is, I'll do maybe the briefest of summaries and then turn it over to Jonathan, since he was the one who chose the book and got Tyler and Drew together with us. But Alter is this is kind of a classic, and he is making the case for a literary approach to reading the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. These terms are kind of sometimes contested. We'll just, listeners, you'll have to give us the benefit of the doubt with what we choose. I'm not trying to, to make a point. At least I'm not. One thing before I turn it over to you, Jonathan, that I'll say is I came in slightly skeptical of kind of the Bible as literature, mostly because of W.H. Auden's poem that he read to Harvard, his Phi Beta Kappa poem, where he enjoined his listeners to stay away from people teaching the Bible as literature. But I was pleasantly surprised. Alter himself kind of acknowledges this critique of the Bible as literature, but he says, a close literary analysis takes seriously the Bible's kind of manifold significations. So, I really enjoyed reading it. Jonathan, you want to set the scene for us and then we can get into it? Yeah. So I got started with Alter by reading his translation of the five books of Moses. And what's really fun are his notes. So even if you don't read the translation and just look at his notes, it's definitely worth it. Reading that, it was just super interesting, super informative. And then I figured, you know, I got to read the Art of Biblical Narrative and see what's going on behind behind the scenes. So to kind of set up the some of the background of the book, it seems like so Robert Alter, professor of I guess Hebrew and Hebrew studies at Berkeley, seems like he kind of just got tired of critical scholarship, critical analysis, just more articles on 
like Akkadian archaeology. And it's like, how about we read the Hebrew texts the way it was intended to be read? And so he comes up with this idea of reading. Maybe he doesn't come up with it, but he he embarks on this project of reading the Hebrew text as narrative. And this is what he comes up with in his book. And so one of the questions that I have is when you read the introduction, you kind of get the sense that the trend in scholarship during his time was all critical scholarship stuff. Hardly anything that approaches the Hebrew text as narrative or as literature. But it seems like that has changed since he wrote this. I don't know, Drew, if you can, if you have a sense as to whether Alter kind of turned the tide on, on some things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so this is 19, the early 1980s. He says the genesis of the book is in the early 1970s, right before I was born. And I think it's fair. I mean, you said it's a, you know, tide changing book and it is, but I still run into biblical scholars all the time. And I mentioned this book and they're like, now who, who again? What, what book? Oh, wow. Uh, so I don't think it has had deep penetration. I think a lot of confessional biblical scholars, right? So if we think about biblical scholarship, most biblical scholars, I think, would not call themselves Christian or Jewish in any kind of confessional way. They might identify with those groups or they might just say they're atheist, agnostic, or otherwise. So really, there is a small subset. In fact, the the big conference I'm going to go to in the next couple of weeks in, in uh, Texas there's a small group called the Institute for Biblical Research within the big group called Society for Biblical Literature that's about one-eighth of the size of scholars who would consider themselves confessional. And of course, it's not all confessional scholars. A lot of Catholic scholars would not be included in that group or they you know, may or may not join in. But it seems like the confessional scholars, the one who take scripture to be some kind of authority in their life, really latched on to Robert Alter. But even amongst them, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes when people are like, yeah, Robert Earl. Now, what did he do again? Um, so it, I think it's had like dendric penetration, like some branches have made their way in, but it's not like bushy yet, if I could put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I would love from both Drew and Tyler, since you have both spent a lot of time with the Old Testament and studying Hebrew, is to kind of lay out for our listeners and for me, just because this is not anywhere near any kind of specialization I might say I have. I think my only real specialization is marketing. What are the ways of reading the Bible? So like someone who grew up in church might be like, well, you read it as, you know, just the word of God that's just told to you and you do what it says and you believe it. Then there's this kind of literary analysis, which we'll get into. Alter also alludes to kind of source critical and form critical readings. What's the general map of how to approach the Hebrew Bible? Tyler, do you want to take that? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'll start with uh, when, when I saw this question, I was thinking first, well, a lot of people just take the Bible and it's a chapter a day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> That's sort of uh, how I guess I grew up. And you, you read your chapter for the day and uh, you've done your good thing. You try to pull out something that's applicable to your life or something. But obviously... That's not a good way to read the Bible, because like we see in in Alter's book, there is so much you miss in the, the structure and what you're actually seeing. Another way that people, I think, read the Bible is they read it as a study where they're just going to go really, really deep, really quickly. They're not going to see it as a picture. They're going to see it as details. They're going to see a tree. They're going to look at the bark, but they don't really 
expand to see that this is actually a beautiful story, perhaps over several chapters, perhaps over an entire book. And so there's sort of that study. They go really deep, really, really fast, which is necessary, but not all the time. And then I was the critique of maybe how a lot of us read the Bible or don't read the Bible is that we usually don't read it for pleasure. And I think this was something that Alter brought out is that the Bible, if you think about it as narrative, et cetera, as literature, then you should be reading the Bible for pleasure. I mean, after all, this is the book that we should spend the most time in out of any book we ever read. And so if you can't enjoy it, then you're really going to suffer through it for years and years and years. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And so something that... um I haven't done as much Hebrew studies or whatever as Drew, but in my limited time in the Hebrew, that was been sort of sort of what I want to do is spend as much time reading broad in order to enjoy reading the narrative. And after you've done that for a number of years, that's when I think you go into details and you really you know the story better. So that's just a couple a couple uh, initial comments I have, Drew. Yeah, I think that reading for pleasure is so important. And there's a new book out by Matthew Mullins, who's a literary um, scholar who takes the same stack, read it out loud and read it for pleasure. And I think if you kind of, some ways I wish I would make my student, I wish if I had more time and, and power, I would just make them read big chunks of the Quran and then make them read any story in the Torah. And they go, oh, this is so much, so much nicer. Like I understand what's going on. And I think this is what Alter gets into in some of the sections on like the dialogue centric narrative, like the particular, the new style of literature that emerges out of epic poetry and lyrical poetry that emerges as this new form of storytelling uniquely in the Hebrew Bible that we actually appreciate it today. Lots of our storytelling conventions today are essentially based on this uniquely Hebraic way of, of telling story, not solely based on it, but are influenced and informed by it. And so I think if you come to the Bible as it's a bunch of oracles of God, it's the revelation of God. So it's oracles and every sentence is perfect and pure. And then you try to squeeze that stone for the devotional blood that it must yield. You end up with like a really distorted lens of what's going on. And I think that, I mean, I, the irony of all of this is that Alter is not a Christian. He's not, he's Jewish, but he's not, he's not religious. He, you know, I think he would identify as an atheist. And so he's, he's not trying to make some religious argument. In fact, when I interviewed him for my podcast, he told me, I said, Oh, so how many times have you taught? Like, do you teach the Pentateuch or you teach the prophets? Cause he's got other books called the art of biblical poetry or the poetics. And the art of Bible translation, which kind of gets you into his thinking about translation. And he's like, Oh, I've never taught a class on the Bible before. Whoa. So he is a teacher of Hebrew and comparative literature, but he doesn't teach biblical literature. Uh, he teaches mm. like Israeli Hebrew literature. He's, he's fluent and I mean, he's a fluent speaker in Hebrew, modern Israeli Hebrew. So he really, you know, if you want like the case that look, this guy that just understands the literature and its language sees the beauty of this literature and not because it's the word of God. Like, so like there's almost an additive feature we could add in there. Like, why did God speak to us in such beautiful literature? And how do we understand the, the bizarreties of it along with what has yielded to us, even on literary fronts, the fact that we read story today and recognize it partially because these Hebrew authors were carving their teeth into and carving new inroads into this literary tradition that they're creating as they go along the way. I, I should also point out and talk about different ways of reading. You know, most people are going to be trained in the American and European system that the first thing you do when you study, formally study scripture is you're going to look at the historical cultural background. You're going to read what we call behind the text. 
And just to be completely honest, a lot of that is because there's a soft Marxist assumption that texts are used to exploit people through power. And so you need to know the background to figure out the the sociopolitical context in which the text has been generated in order to exploit or subdue people or coerce them otherwise. So the big source critical theory right now is you know, documentary hypothesis. There's a neo-documentary hypothesis that has reared its head in the last few years. But really, for everybody else, even if they don't believe in the neo-documentary hypothesis of various sources behind the text, everybody will say it's either P or non-P material. It's either priestly or not priestly. And priestly means the group of people who came back from the exile who were trying to establish themselves as the authority, so they wrote all this ritual stuff into the text that shows that they are the center of God's plan for Israel and you can't do anything without them. And so it's kind of like, look at us, we're important. We wrote our, we're going to write ourselves back into Cain and Abel. We're going to write ourselves into the Noah story. We're going to write our Leviticus, this big thing in the middle that shows you need us because there are no more kings and governors, so we're it. And that's the story that gets told. And you can imagine, and you can talk about form criticism and grammatical syntactical criticism and textual criticism are all playing along that boundary, the social situation. Now, as a Christian who believes these texts are authoritative, I would say, like, I think it's actually important to think about the social historical situation in which the texts are generated. I don't think that actually excludes God and his prophets from being involved. I mean, I would say, like, Deuteronomy, there is actually a specific historical social situation to which that text speaks, uh, the crisis of Moses' death and the children entering the land. So I don't want to, like, say all of these are wrong, therefore we shouldn't do that. I mean, text criticism. I'm a teacher. I do text criticism every day with turnitin.com. I like, you know, we compare all their texts. <laughs> if there's any similarity or differences, we note them, right? And I'm glad we've done that with the New Testament and the Old Testament texts as well. We've learned some things. So I don't want to poo-poo all of these types of criticism, but I actually would like to highlight if there's a, if there's an assumption of how these texts get generated, that's actually probably where the bigger problem is. Great. Super helpful. And I mean, we could dive into kind of his definition of literary analysis. I think he, he defines it multiple times throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the beginning, he says, by literary analysis, I mean the manifold varieties of minutely discriminating attention to the artful use of language, to the shifting play of ideas, conventions, tone, sound, imagery, syntax, and he goes on. But throughout the book, he brings up a lot of 19th century and 20th century novelists. And you can tell this guy's a professor of comparative literature. He's talking about Flaubert. He's talking about James Joyce. And yeah, I found it very helpful. But I think it's kind of best illustrated if we just dive into some of the conventions that he uncovers, or maybe that's the wrong word because that's too critical of word, that he highlights, that he he discusses. One of my favorites was convention and type scene. And so this is something Jonathan and I have talked about that he brought up where you have these kind of source or form critics who say, well, you know, you see this uh, repeated trope of this woman or the man coming to the well and meeting a woman and then she runs off. Uh, It's repeated multiple times in Genesis. And so here's what that says about the various sources and the redactors. But Alter has a very different take. I don't know, Jonathan, if you want to talk about that. I think the example that Alter brings up is he talks about Westerns, right? And (laughs) in that that chapter, he's like, if somebody were to collect 12 Westerns and then realize that the main character is always 
It's always faster than everyone else, can always shoot before anyone else. He uses that image to highlight how the certain tropes actually lend themselves to to helping the narrative or to helping make a particular point or to make to make connections um, between other other narratives. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. He's he's kind of doing a satire of of these critics. It's like this post-apocalyptic world where only 12 Western movies have survived. Right. Um, and he says, the scholars will then divide between a majority that posits an original source Western designated Q that has been imitated or imperfectly reproduced in a whole series of later versions, Q1, Q2, etc., the films we have been screening, and a more speculative minority that proposes an old California Indian myth concerning a sky god with arms of lightning, which explains the quick draw of which all these films are scrambled and diluted secular adaptations. So, I mean, that's pretty funny. But in terms of what it brings out in Genesis, he says this convention of the well scene and is how a betrothal happens or the kind of enunciation of a birth. These are just conventions for the audience in which the real drama of the story then gets filled in in all the kind of differing details. And I think, you know, one point I would make about the Hebrew, well, first of all, Alter does believe in the in source theory. Like, so he, he affirms source criticism. He just thinks it's gone overboard in, in many ways. And, and it's, and it's done so to the peril of neglecting the literary features. But also, you know, what, what I point out to students is I show them a manuscript from Qumran. So the Dead Sea. So, so our oldest manuscripts out there, right? Well, I don't show them the oldest Old Testament manuscripts because those are in Greek, but the oldest Hebrew ones, right? And, and just say like, now where, where are the commas? Where are the question marks? Where are the quotation marks? Right. There's nothing. It's, it's a, often scriptio continua or something very near scriptio continua. And so you point out that they're using even type scenes are a type of punctuation hyperlink. Like, Hey, I'm doing that woman at the well with a man coming in scene. And they do it both internally and externally with text known within the Hebrew Bible, but also text known outside. Right. So the infant exposure motif with. As soon as anybody who has ever set foot in Egypt reads about a baby in peril being put into a basket coated with pitch and tar, they're automatically going, isn't that what Isis did with Horus when she set him in a basket coated with pitch and tar in the Nile? If they're in Mesopotamia, they might say, isn't that what happened to Sargon in the basket, the bulrush basket that is set into the Euphrates in this case? And by using those type scenes too, which he he doesn't actually, I don't think indicate maybe he would today, but by using those type scenes, you're firing up a whole series of expectations, right? So high noon actually has a deeply entrenched meaning in the Western genre in a way which it wouldn't mean that outside of those genres or before those movies were made. And so it's it's a way of doing kind of shorthand and also I think really quickly bringing you into the conceptual world of what they're getting ready to say, where you're going to look for similarities and, and differences. I, I would also point out there are no identical type scenes anywhere in scripture. Even the one that comes closest, I think, would be Joseph and Daniel, where you're just like almost directly on top of each other, except for this excruciatingly different way of doing this one part of dream interpretations. Yeah. And I was just going to mention, so the idea of type scene, I really, really, really enjoyed it in reading Alter because I think he really did a good job. But uh, a lot of these we see in the book of Genesis. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's the beginning of our Bible. And so it's so interesting that that's the one where it's the the well. That's your longest type scene of 
of someone coming to a well. In this case, it's not the future husband, but someone in his place. And it's extremely long in the Hebrew. You have the Sarah not being able to give birth for most of her life. And so I just think that Genesis is setting up these type scenes that throughout the rest of the Bible, we get to see played out. And this is where Alter, this is where I disagree with Alter is that I believe the book, uh, the Bible is also, it's written by man, but it's also written through the Holy Spirit. And it's one story. It's throughout the whole thing. So that's where these type scenes take on real significance. Uh, it's not just that one author is playing on another author or whatever in the, in the scenes. It's that there's a story that's going from Genesis. And then if you go into the Greek, all the way to Revelation. And you see them, you see the New Testament authors playing on these type scenes, especially John in his gospel does a lot of that. Um, even the woman at the well and differences, but a lot of similarities as well. So that was kind of what I wanted to mention is first, Genesis is a beautiful book to set up so many of these type scenes. And then it really flows through the rest of the Bible. And I think it's because it's written by really one author by God through human agency as well. So. Yeah, I think Alter too, my sense of him is that he might not agree with all the type scenes I would identify either. So even within Genesis, there are already type scenes. So I would say the Garden of Eden scene where, again, this very unusually compact language, she, she takes the fruit, she eats it, she gives it to her husband with her, who is with her and, and he eats it. So you get this very, it's all f- four verbs in one sentence, right? Like narrative tempo is increased greatly there. And then you get Abram. And then, and then the indictment is because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the fruit, which told you not to eat of, right? Which is all in the masculine singular, interestingly, but I'll leave that to the side. And then you see Abram with Sarai. She takes Lachach, she takes her servant, uh, Hagar, and gives him to her husband, all, all verbal in, in one sentence. And he listens to her voice. And then you see Rebecca and she takes the, these various items and gives them to her son and compels him saying, listen to my voice, my son, only listen to my voice. So this idea that of a woman taking and giving something to somebody, and quite often with a desire that's not completely out of place with God's will, right? Like the younger was supposed to ser- be served by the older in Rebecca's world. Sarai was supposed to have children uh, from which a nation would proceed. So they're trying to make things happen. Humans are supposed to have the wis- wisdom of good and evil on some level. Yeah. Maybe not supposed to take it for themselves. Yeah. But there's something providential. Depending on what on. that means. Yeah. Right. But, uh, <laughs> who knows what that means? And then the first character in the Bible who doesn't listen to the voice of a woman is Joseph with Potiphar's wife. And he would not listen to her, though she came to him day after day, uh, yom v'yom. And he says why he won't listen to her, because your husband has given me everything in this house except this one thing. And now I just tell students like, now, where have we heard this everything except this one thing theme before, right? Like it actually gets played out quite a bit in the Torah and beyond. But I don't think Alter would recognize those as type scenes, quite honestly. I don't. Why? I don't think they meet. He he has a. Well, let's just admit what we're. okay. we love Alter. Robert, if you're listening to this. Big fans here. Uh, but I think we would have to say he has this view of a particular constellation of events. He has very idiosyncratic, you know, that translation, like, um, Jonathan said, like, <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, just read the notes, skip the translation altogether. Um, it's a very idiosyncratic translation. And I've, you know, I've interviewed him. I've listened to a lot of his, uh, his talking on these things. And I'm kind of always surprised by what he thinks is such a powerful connection. And then other people will bring up what I consider to be even more powerful constellations that seem to be emerging. 
Uh, and he'll go like, oh, no, no, that, that couldn't be the case. And I, when I asked him, who is your translation for, right? Like every translation has an audience in mind. And he said, oh, it's for other literary theorists. And I was like, aha, well, that actually, that, that actually makes sense of everything I'm reading in there. I, I think, I think he has a closed set of things that will fit this. And I, and I, I just think that something is strong, like, like take it, like it, just the way I said that. Uh, and I'll read something later on this issue of repetition for someone to take something and give it to somebody else and that person to listen to their voice. I think most of us would hear that and go, well, that's not a very strong connection. And then I would say, okay, let me show you every single instance in the Hebrew Bible of somebody taking and giving and somebody listening to the voice. And turns out there's only a handful of those across scripture. Uh, and in Genesis, it's only women who are, who are doing these things, except for Joseph where it's, it's bumbled a little bit there. It's reversed a little bit there. So you, I think there are ways, and that's why I focus a lot on methodology. How do you know when you found this and how do you exclude things that don't fit? Um, and I think until we hear like people who take up Robert Alter's call, which I think more people have. I'm less interested in what they think they found. I'm more interested in how they exclude things that look like it, but aren't it. Cause that's when I feel like you really know what you're talking about, uh, is when you have a rubric, when you're willing to sacrifice your children, like oh, there's all these interesting events that kind of look like it, but here's why they don't quite fit. And so I'm going to set them to the side and only focus on these ones. And I don't think actually Robert, again, this is 1980s. Uh, I don't think he gives us that, that rubric quite. He kind of gives a, I'm a literary critic. I have a sense of these things. I know the Hebrew. A great start to the conversation, but I think we have to go three steps forward here. And I just wanted to make a note because um, I'm just in my Hebrew class. We're just uh, went through the story of Ishmael being born. Mm -hmm. So we just did what you talked about where Sarah does something that's out of the ordinary. It's ordinary if you go back to Genesis 3. But I think another thing that sort of sets this apart is that the chapter starts with Vesarai. Mm. And what happens in the Garden of Eden is that the, the serpent comes to the woman immediately. And also in chapter 16 of Genesis, the author is fronting Sarah as the the actor. So for me, that was just sort of like uh, bells because... Maybe you should explain what you just said there. Ah, yes. yes. Starting with Versailles and, and, and why fronting <laughs> yeah. is so important there. Help, yeah. help, help me Phil. out, Tyler. <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah. you. That's right. That's right. Not everyone speaks Hebrew. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's an important point. Yeah. It's an important point. So uh, in the Hebrew, it's and Sarah or and Sarai before she turns to Sarah uh, with God's pronouncement. But basically, the chapter starts out with talking about Sarah and what she does. So adding to what Drew said, where she goes, she then takes uh, Hagar and she gives her to Abraham as a wife. Basically, the author's showing that Sarah's doing something. Sarah's not, Sarah's the actor. And just like in Genesis 3, where Eve doesn't listen to the voice of God. She listens to the voice of the serpent. Also, Sarah is not listening to the voice of God. God has already come to Abraham and told him what he's going to do for him, that he's going to give a seed. And Sarah sort of takes things into her own hands here. So for me, that was also another 
literary device to show me that, yes, this is talking about another woman who does something. And again, it's not to say that women are bad. That's <laughs> in our culture. We have to, to clarify that. Yeah. That is not the story of the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's just that in this context, it's setting up, right, like a type scene. It's showing that uh, there's a bigger connection here. So we should point out that I don't know what the percentage is, but it's got to be something like 80% of the prose sentences in Hebrew begin with and not not the subject of the verb, but it begins with and the verb, and he walked, and was barren, Sarai, right? So the reason why seeing Sarai or Sarah as the first word in the sentence is it's breaking convention. In fact, Robert Alter says in a later book, if you were to translate, this is what he calls the paratactic dimension of the and this, and the, it would actually be unbearable for English readers. I don't think they could handle that. I, I think it's something like 80% of prose sentences in the Hebrew begin with the word and or but. But can you imagine if that were translated out literally? That's why people are like, what's the most literal translation? I'm like, <laughs> I don't think you can handle it quite honestly. I think, <laughs> you can't think it would, handle the it, truth. It would break your brain. Yeah. But in Hebrew, it's just one letter that added to the front of the, in the front of the verb. So it's not, not the way we think of it where you're adding an entirely new word into the sentence that shapes it. So, so in, you know, you mentioned, uh, Drew, that there's some parallels or type scenes that Robert Alter wouldn't recognize. And there's one that I have a question about, like, I don't know, I don't know if this is an actual, mm. you know, type scene, an actual parallel, but in Genesis 21, where you have Hagar and Ishmael being sent away and Ishmael is near death and the angel of the Lord shows up and, you know, and, and Ishmael is spared. And then you have the next chapter, which is the binding of Isaac, where you have, you know, eventually you have Abraham and Isaac up on the, on the hill, up on the mountain. And, you know, Abraham lifts his, his knife or whatever to, to, to sacrifice. Well, well to be clear, he doesn't, he doesn't lift it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there if, you go. You're, if you're gonna kill somebody, you you're, you're sli slitting the neck here. So yeah, but I always imagine it as him lifting it too, and then I was like, wait, no, no, I, he's bleeding him out. <laughs> yeah, I I jumped the gun as a scriptwriter. Um, <laughs> Lightning flashes. Ima imagining yeah. the scene, yeah. it's, it's a little bit more dr more dramatic. Um, it is more, and like the climax is when the hand is the highest in the air, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then the angel shows up, and the the child is spared. So is there, like, would that, would that, does that count? And if it does, what does it, what does it tell us? What, I don't know if Drew or Tyler, you have. You'll be so happy to know that lots of Jewish ink has been spilled on this, <laughs> on this topic. So yeah, this is a common uh, discussion amongst Jewish philosophers through the ages. Yeah, even to the extent that I've recently heard a Jewish philosopher argue that uh, Ishmael was the favored son. And it was because of the dysfunction that uh, God basically accommodates them and is like, okay, you guys clearly aren't going to play nice with the one that I chose, so we're going to go this other route. That that was God giving them a chance. And so Sarai was right to use Hagar. She was right to employ. So there's lots of different ways you could uh, read that. I think, um, are you looking for the theology from the literature? Is that uh, like, what do we make of these two sacrifices yeah sure or or is the type scene there and um like do we see it elsewhere oh yeah or is maybe it's a near eastern thing of child sacrifice like so child sacrifice is not a big thing in the ancient near east it, which it makes sense is why the hebrew bible makes such a big deal out of it where you do see it in canaan it seems to be restricted only to canaan um 
and they are freaking out about it, which I would say properly freaking out about it. Yeah, as you should. <laughs> um, but what is, uh, it, it's a theme, and I'm, I'm trying to think if it's a type scene, and maybe Tyler would have an idea, but it's certainly a theme vulnerable you know what you do with children because they're they are part of the subclass that the hebrew bible is worried about which is uh people who are vulnerable and people who exploit people at the very point of their vulnerability right like people who tell their kids that santa claus exists the only way you can get away with that is because you're exploiting a child that doesn't know enough to know that that's not true right uh so the hebrew bible the bible would hate you on that front right uh, but for the rest of us who serve god um the uh yeah, so I think I, I feel like I'm under judgment right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. My kids came home from school and told me, like, no, I was wrong. Some kids at school told them there really was a Santa Claus, and I just need to get my act together. So <laughs> you can't avoid uh, culture and tradition, right? Um, yeah, I think the what God does to people who are vulnerable, ex- impossibly exploited, and I would say Hagar looks like a case of exploitation, but vulnerable and at their very point of vulnerability. God and God intercedes, and in the next story, God provides. I think, or He sees to it. It's actually Yere there, which is like He He takes care. He sees to it, which that theme gets driven all the way through. God sees the Hebrew boys who are under the threat of death, and He uses well midwives, whether you think they're Egyptian or Hebrew or not. Uh, even Pharaoh's own house refuses to cooperate with that command. And I, we, you can go all the way down the line. That thread is sewn all the way through the Hebrew Bible. The problem is this massive question mark is raised with like, why would he say, take your son, your only son, whom you love to a place that I will show you and sacrifice him there? That's the part that has caused so many problems. Christians, I say like, okay, there's an easy cheat here. Would What kind of a God would ask a man to kill his son, his only son, whom he loved, right? Um, (laughs) You're like, okay, we can finish the logic on that thought. I think it's harder if if you don't have the Christian narrative, though, quite honestly. Right. Sorry, that was a lot. Tyler, what did you you think about that? No, I I don't have too much to add. I think uh, what you said about God, his heart for those who cannot help themselves. So all throughout the first five books, you have the widow, the sojourner, the orphan. And then the book of Ruth is a beautiful sort of, that's a bigger scene of uh, what's going on where you have a woman, she is a widow, and she's not even from uh, the the Israelite people. She's from uh, Moab, but yet God looks after her. She marries Boaz. Uh, so I don't have too much to add. I think it's a, it's there. I don't know if I would call it a type scene per se. Uh, but it's definitely a theme. There is a question, too, in literary studies, whether you can have a type scene where there's only two instances. Huh. So I would tend to say, yeah, it's a micro type scene or something like that. But um, maybe there are other instances, too. Like as, uh, often if I just like read with that question in mind, are there mm-hmm. other, you know, like long haul read for pleasure through the Bible? And you're like, oh, wait, here's another one I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you if I give you that. You have everything except this one, like eat eatingly from all the trees except this one tree. And, and you take that idea, you'll find it at the manna episode. Eat your fill, but just don't do it on Sabbath, right? This kind of mm. all you want, but not this one thing. Right. You'll find it in all kinds of crazy places. I don't think they're type scenes, but they're there's something like a type scene, thematic type scenes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that, that I wonder about with, with the Ishmael and Isaac episode is they're the... There are the similarities, right? The the two get spared, 
but then there are the differences, and I'm I just wonder whether the difference between how they're spared, whether that tells us anything. So with Ishmael, you know, they they just get provision, but with with Isaac, the the ram, the ram has to be sacrificed. Um, so what's that? Uh, what's that telling us as a as a narrative? Look. Uh, I actually just, I, I have a chapter coming out in a book. The whole book is on the Akedah and the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic uh, biblical studies. So I, I was reading quite a bit on it. I, I don't think any of us can say anything here. Like, <laughs> I, was, I mean, I, I do. My argument was actually, though, I didn't think about it until now. It was, it was an Altarian argument here is that people aren't paying attention enough to the formal structure. I mean, if you read that in the Hebrew, I mean, even in the English, it comes across. But that is probably outside of Genesis one, some of the most stratified text with repetition. Mm-hmm. There, are, it's thirteen over thirteen or fourteen sentences. The the narrator mentions the relation, the father son relationship between those two guys, uh, twelve times over fourteen sentences. Wow. Like, did we need to know that these two people were father and son? <laughs> did we forget that they like right. um, the repetition of and they went both of them together and they went both of them together seems to form a little micro inclusio there that brackets off the I see the fire, I see the knife, but where is the sacrifice? Right, Yahweh will provide. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think actually the um, the literary structure, the climax of the knife up high or down low. <laughs> um, and then the resolution really comes when, not just when he sees the ram, but when the when it, it says, and he offered the ram as a sacrifice instead of his son, Isaac, right? That's when you're like, okay, all the tension has left the story now. We know he's safe. And he names that place, Yahweh will provide or Yahweh will see to it. And then you have an editorial note, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of Yahweh, it shall be provided. And that's when it's fun when you're reading it, stop and say like, who's saying that? What what day? <laughs> yeah. What are they talking? What mountain of Yahweh? What are they even talking about? Right? So I think the literary structure actually guides you away from questions like what kind of a God would ask a man to kill his son? And actually towards this, what do they know walking away? They know Yahweh provides, which actually will be a theological issue for Israel all the way to Revelation, mm-hmm. the Israel of God and, and such. So, Yeah. In terms of that kind of the theology and the philosophy of it, I do want to get to that. Um, but quickly before we do, uh, I'd love to just hear from you guys. I brought up this kind of convention and type scene, which we've been discussing, but each chapter alter kind of highlights another kind of tool from the toolbox of literary analysis. And then he usually uses it on one or more stories to show you like, here's how if you kind of pull this scalpel out and you bring it to the text, how it opens it up. But yeah, are are there other kind of examples of like, wow, this really opens things up when you have this in mind? I mean, one that I I think of all, I mean, the one that I think is to me, teaching people who don't know the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament that well, the issue of repetition is so prominent. And unfortunately, and in, in his later, it's actually, he released this book just a few years ago, The Art of Bible Translation. He really like rails on English translations. Because and one of his problems is that biblical scholars who are translating, they don't know understand literature very well. And so they have no literary sensibility. Right. So their English doesn't have a literary flair to it. So 
Strangely, he thinks the King James is the bomb of English translations. He thinks it's the one who got it right in a lot of places. Um, and I would agree. That makes at least two of us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are so, a couple of spots that I'm always shocked where the King James actually got a much closer translation. Um, there's a lot of places where I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fun. <laughs> but I do think, you know, one of the, he, he calls it the translator's rage to explain and their their aversion to repetition through synonyms. So uh, they'll constantly, so let me, if I could just read one little passage here. Please. I please. think explain what he, what he means, a passage from scripture to show you. It's in 1 Samuel 8. That's the people have asked for a king like the nations that surround him. And Samuel's like, okay, but I'm going to warn you what this king is going to, thinking that he's going to give them this horrible description and they're going to go, oh, never mind. And they and they go, yes, that's what we want, right? <laughs> so here's the description. And again, going back to the take and give, the lakach and natan, I'm going to, well, maybe I'll just read what they say. I have the ESV in front of me. I'll read what they how they translate it and then I'll tell you what it actually says here. Sure, yeah. Um, so this is beginning of verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of Yahweh uh, to the, sorry, the Lord to, so I can't, I, I just can't do it. So, so Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people who are asking for a king. He said to them, these will be the ways of a king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint, that's actually give them to, right? And, and will give them to his chariots and to be his horsemen to run before his chariots. And he will give for himself commanders. It says a point here, but it's give, Natan. Uh, to the thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and equip his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your fields and your vineyards and give it to his officers and the servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And it literally says, and give them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves in the day that you cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but Yahweh will not answer you in that day. So it's this very intense take and give, take and give, take and give in the Hebrew. But because English translators are like, well, it, you know, it doesn't make sense to us to say he'll give them to his service or, you know, he'll appoint them to his service. He'll put them to work. And I sympathize. Like I understand. That requires the English speaker to stretch their sense of give and take. It, it, there has to be some give and take with give and take, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Just made that joke for the first time here today. <laughs> and I find the same thing with ra, which is evil. Um, so they'll translate out evil. So when humans are doing evil in the Bible, it's, it's, uh, or when they're doing ra, it's evil. When God does ra, it's, it's called calamity or disaster, uh. right? Uh, but it's the same word. Uh, and so, and of course, people freak out when they find this out. And I'm like, well, okay, you can freak out, but the biblical authors were not bothered at all by describing <laughs> right. as God as doing evil or doing ra'ah. So I often wonder if it's, if it would be better, hmm. maybe too disruptive to say evil with God. Cause it just, you know, you need someone to like coach somebody through from our cultural views of evil. Um, right. but they have a wider view of that word and they're repeating it trying to connect ideas together. Okay, why when God does it, it's not bad or it's necessary or it's a necessary evil or something like that. Why, why when God does it, it's treated differently than when humans do it. There's something about the nature of evil that God can do it and it doesn't make him evil, but we somehow participate in it as well. And as soon as you know that, then you turn to Augustine or Augustine and you're like, okay, 
evil can't be the privation of good. That's like, that's not how they're, it can't be that simple. It can, it can be, that can be part of the definition, but it can't be that simple in the way that they're using it. So repetition gets you into the conceptual world. It's uh, how they're using that same word in these different times and circumstances helps you to understand the concepts that they're employing. And by translating those out with synonyms, it's what Robert Alter later calls, it's a rage to over, to explain over the text. Uh, to speak louder than the voice of the biblical authors as to what they think is going on. Yeah, and it seems that sometimes the explanations or the translations are not incorrect. Right. It's a good way to put um, it. But, <laughs> but <laughs> they're not wrong. But what they definitely do is that they do not allow you to see those connections. Yeah, that's right. So even if there's no problem with the translation, it's the yeah the connections between different texts, you, you will just miss them. And let's just be completely honest here. The reason why God doesn't do evil in the NIV or the ESV is because you are never going to be able to sell that Bible <laughs> to Southern Baptist Church, to Presbyterian Church. Like, I mean, we're joking a little bit, but that's actually the bottom line. Like, why does it say the Lord rather than Yah- Yahweh? Literally the bottom line. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it says it, it has a title for God's name. And then it put, and then for the dirt lane, which is a title, they, they give him a personal name, Adam, right? They reverse all the logic there. Why do they do it? Because that's what they know you have to do in order to sell these Bibles in the church, which is fine. Like, like that's part of the industry. I think this makes a very natural pitch why everybody should learn a little Hebrew and why Hebrew is a natural language that everybody can speak and read just like any other language. Uh, and it should just be part of the kind of like, like, in, you know, you live on a Southern border state, you know, some Spanish, right? You just know how the language works. So you can kind of do some Spanglish if you need to, right? Like I think Hebrew should be like that in the church and, and Greek too, as well. Um, which if we had that, think about that whole discussion about freaking people out, we wouldn't even have to have it. People could see it for themselves and they would be able to think through it very early on. No, that That's nice. I like the, I like the analogy to Having grown up in a border state. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you you just absorb this stuff by osmosis. I'm not a, even close to anything like proficient Spanish speaker, but I can kind of find my way around when necessary. More from just living there mm-hmm. than from taking any classes. And if we're living in the text, then, yeah, you should at least become like, uh, you know, be able to hear it. Before we move on to, I, I do want to talk about kind of what Alter thinks is going on in the bigger picture, theologically or philosophically, with the time we have remaining. But before we do, Tyler, do you want to bring up any of the tools from the literary analysts' uh, toolbox? Um, well, I won't go as long as Drew, just because I, I don't have a good example of <laughs> that Drew already had. But um, I did enjoy and actually learned from his interplay between narrative and dialogue mm. because I mean I've I've read quite a bit of Hebrew at this point but I haven't actually thought about the fact that so much of it is actually narrative I knew there was a lot but in fact the the book of Deuteronomy is what it's a it's a sermon basically and a good you know it's basically uh spoken mm. so uh, just realizing how much is there and how much that helps us understand stuff about the characters from their perspective or about other things so yeah, don't have a good example, but basically just start noticing that in even in reading English, I think for our listeners or whatever, just what can we learn from that dialogue and then going from reported speech to narrative. So you, you get it twice, at least, if not three times, 
what someone does, what their intentions, what they do, uh, et cetera. And I think that can be helpful. It's a device that I think shows importance to the author of the Bible. And so I think that means that we should take that as important for whatever reason. And then also with that, we can see the nuances of when two different people say the same thing, but, you know, change one word or something. I think that's what Alta brought up a lot was, what are people's actual intentions? You can actually see things when they change a word here or there or a phrase. So it's just something to to keep in mind as we're reading. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's an example of that when um, Jacob flees Laban. He tells him that he had a vision uh, at, at night that kind of justifies everything Jacob, every shady thing Jacob did. And uh, <laughs> you, you have to point out that the narrator tells us not. So everything else in the story of Genesis, the narrator tells us, and then we hear about it in dialogue. That's the only thing that we only hear coming out of Jacob's mouth. And the question that's kind of put to the audience is, how do we uh, understand most of the things that have come out of Jacob's mouth at this point, right? Um, <laughs> so I, I have a serious question as to whether the the, the vision is real mm. or not, or whether it's fabricated I in see. some way. Yeah, yeah interesting. Interesting. By the way, yeah. Tyler, I read this book 15 years ago. This is the part that was new to me again. I was like, I guess I read this, but I how did I miss this part? But it was probably I read a lot of Hebrew in between then and now. Yeah. And yeah. so it popped off the page for me as well. Yeah, I felt that it was a helpful thing to to be reminded of. And also so, some of it was new. So I, I appreciated that. Mm. So not only is Alter giving you some tools to come to the Bible with kind of a fresh set of eyes, but he's also making an argument about why so much of the Bible is narrative and why it's the kind of narrative it is. I wouldn't say it's a sustained argument. It's an argument that kind of appears throughout the book you know, kind of variations of a theme. One of the most concise statements of it is towards the end of the book on page 220. He says, it was no easy thing to make sense of human reality in the radically new light of the monotheistic revolution, the fictional imagination that is the, the mind that creates these narratives. Marshalling a broad array of complicating and integrating narrative means provided a precious medium for making this sort of difficult sense. So, as you get from other parts of the book, Alter thinks that the reason the Jewish people have this kind of historical narrative written in the way it is, is at least in part to deal with their unique status as monotheists and to distinguish themselves from the pagan world that has these um, verse epics that are written very differently. So he, he contrasts them with kind of their the pagan surroundings. He also contrasts them with the pagan Greek tradition. Um, Drew, you're kind of the you're the expert huh. uh, biblical philosophy. On paganism? What, what do you make of all this? <laughs> well, well, the uh, the philosophy of um, of the Bible yeah. and Alter's argument here about why the narrative is the way it is and why it is at all. Yeah, that was one of the other things that kind of s stuck out to me again because I, I wasn't thinking a lot about biblical philosophy and the kind of the intellectual world of the Bible the first time I read this. And I don't know that he thinks that it was overtly reacting to epic poetry or the narratives that surrounded them, but I do think there is a way, and several, Meyer, he quotes Meyer Sternberg and Eric Auerbach as well, of people who have noted that monotheism thing is a big deal. So as soon as you set monotheism as, as a thing, you have to explain all of these other relations in light of it. And the question is, what's the best way to do that? Or what's a sufficiently good way to do that? 
Well, theirs was not the syllogistic way. So it wasn't like, let's linearly deduce all these attributes so they don't go, although they do go ontological, right? Exodus um, two and three, it is about like, I am who I am. Okay, well, what does that mean? It's kind of, I will be who I will be. I am like, I'm the God, I'm entrenched in history in some way. So they do kind of talk about what kind of a thing God, God is by who he is and how he acts in the world. So they do have light ontology there, but really it's mostly about character development. And I think if you think of the attributes of God as, as, as character attributes, then a narrative is the best way to show character. Mm, I can tell you, you know, uh, Jonathan Roberts, man, he's the kind of guy who's always shows up when you need him, right? Um, but if I'm trying to really convict you of that premise, I'm going to embed that, that premise in a series of stories by which you see what that looks like in very different stories, right? Different time and circumstance. This also plays into their conceptual world of, Truth, truth talk, emet, aman, emuna, things that you put your trust in. Things are true because they're, they are what they ought to be over time and circumstance, right? So different circumstances, different locations, it still holds true. We have some of this language like being loyal, being high fidelity, showing high fidelity to the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And so I think this all fits together that they're having a rigorous conversation, a discourse, philosophical discourse about the nature of this one God, hmm. which notice, like you can get it all the way to Deuteronomy and you're, it's unclear whether they think there are other gods out there, right? The song of the sea is who's like our God amongst the gods. And you're waiting for him to go like, of course there are no other God, but no, you got to wait till Deuteronomy. So they finally say it out loud. They seem to be henotheist up to that point. And so they're really unrolling the language uh, of what we would call the ontology of God by showing his character over time and in various circumstances, and that there's some stable core of Godhead there that is discernible to them, despite all of these various things. And so when you get to Deuteronomy, what is it all about? It's about you being a wise and discerning people who know and cling and love, listen to and love this, this one God who has turned out to be who he said he would be from the very beginning up to this point. That's a way to have a conversation, I, I think, a philosophical, theological conversation about God, the anthropology that entails, uh, about our obligations uh, in light of this to both God and creation and creatures. I think it's frustrating to people. I always say it's like the Robert California way of answering a question. Like, like <laughs> what is leadership? Let me tell you a rando story about something that happened in Cambodia. <laughs> Let me tell you another rando story. And uh so I think it can feel like that, except for, I, unlike Robert California, I think the biblical authors know exactly what they're doing. And that Robert Alter points out is that that mean economy of language and hyper laser focus on particular details allows them to do this intense philosophical work. If it were East of Eden, rolling off into backstories for like 200 pages, uh, it's harder to do that deep philosophical conceptual work, um, or it requires probably too much for any of us to hold in our heads. But oh, that's great, Tyler, Jonathan. Um, anything else you want to say about the book, about the kind of narrative philosophical project? Uh, one of the things that I do want to ask, you know, before we wrap up, is so obviously our listeners should read the Old Testament, right? And, you know, Robert Alter could be very useful to read. His notes on his translation, definitely really, really juicy stuff there. What else can our listeners look for along these lines that might be beneficial to their own reading of the Old Testament, especially? Tyler, do you have any go-to books or, uh, or articles? 
Not off the top of my head. I would say, I mean, my my go-to answer is learn Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> come come learn Hebrew at uh, ALI. Heck yeah. But uh, no, not off the top of my head. I just, in my personal experience, just reading, 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 especially in the language, but read it for enjoyment. So, I mean, it's not an article, but it's it's the it's the Bible itself. So, well, and kind of along, along to add to what Tyler just said, one of the things that I've found is so I'm currently in a in a Bible study where we're just reading Genesis really slowly and just discussing it, and it's just amazing what you, what other people will notice that you won't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, discussing these texts, I would highly recommend yeah. doing that as well. Tyler, do you want to you want to make the pitch for kind of why why to study Hebrew, but more importantly, like how to do it and why you should do it with ALI and what you guys are up to in your class? So first of all, I think uh, as has already been intimated that I think everyone should learn a little Hebrew at least uh, if you're in the church, anyone can, and I think we have a responsibility to learn the Bible as well as we can to the best of our ability, and one way to do that is taking a little bit of Hebrew. So again, I'm not going to say everyone has to, but uh, it's fun. It's fun. And the reason you should learn it at ALI is that we really try to make it enjoyable. So basically, our method at the moment is storytelling. So we start out from day one telling stories. And because they can't speak Hebrew at that point, I'm the one who tells stories, the teacher. And we, we tell many, many, many stories. And we do it with a really cool setup here. So they get to see. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can kind of see a little bit of what's what's going on. Oh, that is awesome. For our listeners, there's like a huge corner diorama that Tyler has built. You are not messing around. (laughs) Sun, the sky, clouds, mountains, a house, a river, a coast. Um, I mean, here's the thing. This this is not how I learned Hebrew. I learned Hebrew by by a book of grammatical rules. And I look at this and I'm like, can I just wipe all my Hebrew knowledge and start over again and do it this way? I mean, it really would. It would be a different world of Hebrew for me. Yeah. So so that's what we enjoy doing. Uh, So we learn a lot about characters at the beginning, family trees, especially from Genesis. We learn a lot of places. We learn a lot of prepositions, where people are, where they're going. And so at the beginning, we're basically building a world. And then throughout the rest of the course, we're filling in that world. It actually reminds me of Genesis 1, where God, he creates and then he fills. And so I guess that's sort of uh, the goal of our program. So we're working through Genesis, take a story each week uh, at the end of the class, and we basically walk through it, obviously in simplified Hebrew, but gradually getting more difficult. So yeah, that's what we do here at ALI. We I enjoy it a lot. I hope the students do. They're starting to tell stories now, and they're doing a really good job. So I, I know they do because they email me and say, this class is awesome. I love Tyler. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So as I've mentioned, Drew is written a lot. He's a very distinguished scholar. He's the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought. Drew, can you kind of tell our audience uh, what you're up to and maybe how if this conversation was interesting, how they can kind of continue the conversation, learn more, um, dive into this. Yeah. Interestingly for biblical scholars, how I pitch what we're doing is I say what Robert Alter did for 
uh, the literary dimensions of the uh, biblical text, we're trying to do for the philosophical dimensions of the literary text awesome. is to help people see that there's something there, uh, help them to see the indicators. I think many people already know the indicators. They just haven't thought about it as an intellectual tradition. And by intellectual, I would include spiritual, embodied, communitarian, all of that is part of being an intellectual tradition. If you're a lay person and you're like, this might have been slightly on the too nerdy side of a conversation, then uh, we do have the Biblical Mind, uh, biblicalmind.org or biblicalmind.com, where we have lots of articles by scholars who kind of, we have people translate the scholarship into uh, normal speak on lots of topics from should we repent of our grandparents' racism, according to the biblical authors, uh, all the way down to economics hmm. issues. We interview people. Right now, we have a series going with Esau McCauley, Lisa Bowens, and Vince Bantu, and Anthony Bradley, my colleague here, on why the black church interpreted the Bible so correctly on social political issues all the, in the Americas, and the white church seems to have gotten it mostly wrong. Um, and so what do we make of it, the fact that they got it so right and, and the white church largely got it wrong? And how should we employ that knowledge in some kind of useful, practical way today? So um, we have all kinds of interesting discussions, mostly with biblical scholars and theologians, but also all, all kinds of people. Like I did a Israeli venture capitalist the other day who is literally using the Torah to think about economic principles. And he's come up with some very like interesting, I think, feasible things. So yeah, so biblicalmind.org, we have a podcast, and we have articles, and we have some videos over there that we do. Um, and then I have a bunch of nerdy books um, that I can't in good conscience commend to anybody <laughs> unless you're a real nerd and want to read them. Um, but I work on ritual as well, ritual and, and, and philosophy of the Bible and what sacraments and that kind of stuff. So that's where my interests are. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Uh, unless there's any closing thoughts, anybody? I, I would like to say one last thing. Yeah. I laughed when I read the line in, in Alter, which I probably should have, that should have been what I read in the cold opening, which was, he said, like, how offensive is it that somebody could say, like, the Bible is literature? Like, if you said, well, I'm going to teach a class on Dante as literature, would, you know, would anybody bulk? <laughs> uh, and I think it's a good point that the fact that people bulk at it and say, what, the Bible is literature already says we have a, a mildly distorted lens through which we're looking at scripture. And so strangely enough, we have this atheist Jewish literature scholar who's come along to kind of point out to us, you guys are doing a little weird. Like maybe you want to try a, a more natural approach. And uh, I'm very thankful uh, that he's come along and that people have listened and that they, they suggested him to me. So. What good can come out of Berkeley? <laughs> Apparently something. Legitimate question. There you go. <laughs> but a good answer. S said as a son of the East Bay, so I can make fun of it. Um, well, thanks everybody for listening. Tyler, Drew, thanks again. That was really awesome. Thanks for joining us. Please, if you liked this, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, share it, write a review. If it's funny or something, we might read it on air. Until next time. Thanks everybody. Bye.